if you add a method to an interface, it's a breaking change, right? Because now your interface is very different. But if you add a new method to a struct, it's which direction is now? It's now forward or backward compatible? <laughs> Whatever, it's compatible like <laughs> some, some compatible, yeah. Welcome to episode number seven of the Optimize All the Things podcast. I'm your host, Bartek Podka. And I'm your host, Ivan Volkov. Optimize All the Things is a podcast in which we talk about software engineering, performance, technology, careers, soft skills, and really all the things we can optimize in our work and life. Today, we have a very special guest, Bjorn Ravenstein, ultra experienced engineer, longtime Prometheus maintainer, and my friend. In this episode, we touch on the topic that perhaps every software engineer should know about, such as versioning and backward or forward compatibility of our software, APIs and interfaces. Unfortunately, typically there is not enough practical information on how to make your code nice for others or use versioned components effectively for yourself. Probably you heard about semantic versioning, scheme, also know as Semver, or maybe you also seen many projects escaping this model with lifetime version of zero. So let's discuss this difficult topic of versioning. And there is no better way to learn about those than from those who have actively maintained very popular open protocols and software for over a decade now, such as our guest Bjorn. Let's go. We really appreciate the feedback uh, you give us. And if you want to suggest improvements to the podcast or you want uh, to hear us talking about uh, a topic that you really like, feel free to use the Google form in the description of the episode or message us directly on social media. Bartek, do you have any news? I think one thing that is, again, like in the realm of AI, uh, which is which will be the theme of this year, I guess, mm-hmm. but <laughs> more a lot of more things are popping up, of course, every week, but some of them are really recreative, really honestly. Um, so one thing which is kind of like, I hope it's a joke, but apparently there are, you know, devices like that. So apparently there is a um, <laughs> camera that essentially doesn't have lenses, doesn't have anything. It just records mm-hmm. that the, it's kind of like no lens camera that uh, just records your location and maybe, you know, the weather and some information and prepares like a prompt to some generative AI um, (laughs) that essentially generates photo for you, right? Like based on this information. So it doesn't doesn't capture a photo. It's not camera per se, but it captures this situation in this kind of like virtual reality. Um, What do you think? Yeah, no, I think it's very fun. Uh, I think it's kind of uh, maybe a gimmick. Like I I don't think that's ever gonna be used anywhere other than you know for maybe some art project or you know some i don't know as a as a fun gift maybe uh, but yeah no definitely very interesting it's basically this is optimizing kind of for how do you generate a prompt for your ai model right and it is using all of this data like uh, your location the weather so yeah i don't know it's interesting uh, maybe there will be some interesting uh, applications like that using other data sources Uh, i don't know maybe your mood and uh, i don't know also the weather to pick a song for you or something like that i don't know so many interesting applications uh, just how do you generate the prompt for all of these ai models yeah another interesting thing is like the actual lens uh, it has no lens but the thing instead of lens kind of looks like crab right like the uh sea creature 
just to finish up, if you want to take a look, it's yeah. called Faragrafica. And essentially, it's an art project, right? But uh, it kind of questions the reality and questions the AI, the role of the AI in, in a time of creative tension. Um, but, uh, well, it's cheaper than camera, I guess. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, yeah, yeah, yeah. What, what about crap? Yeah, yeah, I was, um, I heard uh, recently about, uh, uh, I guess, some uh, drama, maybe, in the Rust community. Yeah. So there is a officially now a fork of Rust called Crab, um, and uh, yeah, uh, the idea is that uh, it it's kind of pretty much one to one in terms of uh, source code, uh, but basically uh, the biggest point is that Crab is kind of Rust without the bureaucracy, and from what I gather, uh, there is a lot of uh, kind of uh, I guess admin things happening around Rust, like uh, obviously you need to have some kind of committee that decides uh, how things are being built, it's a huge project, um, but there are some issues and from what I understand the biggest issue is around trademark and uh, basically what you can and can't do uh, using Rust, using the Rust logo and so on and so forth. So Crab is kind of like the idea of, okay, taking all of this without the bureaucracy. I think. Uh, the main goal here isn't to kind of support a fully fledged uh, programming language as a separate, uh, you know, open source repo. It's more to kind of uh, make a stance and uh, basically try to influence uh, the Rust Foundation or like the committee that is uh, helping uh, build Rust to be less bureaucratic. But now it will be interesting what, what will happen. And there is another interesting kind of maybe coincidence, maybe not. Uh, similar thing happened with another uh, Mozilla child, uh, you know, Rust is coming out of the Mozilla Foundation as well. Uh, but in, in the past, Firefox was also forked uh, in Debian, and it was called uh, Ice Weasel, pretty much for the exact same reason. Uh, trademark issues uh, in Debian, uh, you wouldn't want to use any kind of uh, this kind of prohibitive licenses, so they came up with their own kind of uh, wrapper around that. What, what, what do you think about the, this? No, it definitely highlights the problem, right? Um, highlights the problem, but it's a very toxic way of solving this problem. <laughs> uh, but maybe the, the, only, the only way, right? So, you know, it's, it's just, just not nice what is happening. And it's not, yeah, this discussion is not helping, you know, um, with the community, with adoption of this, um, yeah, pretty cool language otherwise. Uh, you know, I'm looking on the page. It's already have like 5K of GitHub stars. It is a crab lang mm -hmm. organization with like, in the logo, you have this crab with the knife. Like how inclusive yeah. is all this? It's, it's just, all of it is just very toxic and very um, unhelpful. Um, but, you know, maybe that's the only way to, to, to show something, to, to, to show the problem, right? And what was, uh, yeah, every time there is something and it seems like, some people have different opinions and there is some maybe strictly controlled um, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. company or organization and and I know there were like really troubles into like they tried to influence the Rust like, conference and that was the uh, you know, yep. recent drama. It's just so unnecessary, right? And um, yeah, I... Yeah, I mean, we, we have to now admire, I guess, um, the really good work other communities are making to, 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 to kind of not 
you know, not trigger <laughs> those problems and, and be inclusive in a, for example, GoLang, right? It's also strictly controlled by mm. Google. And yet, uh, despite some kind of like different opinions, you know, it stays sane kind of, right? And, and kind of like inclusive to, to, mm. to maybe changes that, um, you know, have, um, yeah, opposites, oppositions and, 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 uh, and those who are for those. So I'm not sure. I'm not sure, I, yeah, you yeah. know, I, essentially I'm not sure if I would be like, yeah, yeah, happy and happy that finally Rust, Rust is fork and we can jump into this crap. No, it's a crab, not crab, by the way. Yeah, <laughs> it, now, now it's only complicated nature now, but um, yeah. I'm not sure. Ho I mean, fortunately, yeah. I'm not bo not bought into this ecosystem, so I personally don't have a problem. But it's it sucks if you are there, right? If you are a company that is using yeah, yeah. This, uh, using the Rust, definitely. And uh, maybe you listeners should take our opinion with a grain of salt. Like we are not, as Bartik is saying, we are not really into the Rust community. So uh, yeah, do your own research. But yeah, uh, but it was very interesting. Uh, you mentioned. Uh, GitHub stars as a measure of success of a project. Uh, I saw that you, in our uh, document, you mentioned uh, an article about GitHub stars. Like, w what was it about? Yeah, totally. So apparently there is, uh, I mean, that was kind of like, probably you can imagine that there are ways to artificially mm -hmm. buy things, buy likes on Facebook, buy Instagram followers and by yep. um, actually GitHub stars, right? So, you know, there was a, a very nice blog post about uh, a person who tried to, to buy and compare and, mm -hmm. you know, even like compare the price per star from different services and, <laughs> you know, the cheap stars were essentially fake accounts, the more premium yep. stars were something more sophisticated where those fake accounts were kind of like, uh, like try to, to do something useful. So it, it yep. is not flagged by GitHub. So the cheap ones were removed after a week or after some time by GitHub. Mm -hmm. So they kind of noticed their robot accounts and so on. Uh, so they were not worth it. But uh, the, the, the premium ones were kind of like, you know, like um, state, right? And, mm -hmm. and also yeah. there is really cool, um, well, now abandoned project, Astronomer in Go, actually written mm -hmm. in Go, and it checks the kind of like how, you know, how should you trust the number of stars and uh -huh. kind of like the, the, like the reputation stars. of the star. Yeah, and apparently, you know, the, the premium stars that, that this person, the author, bought passed, kind of the past the, 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 the yeah. test, right? Um, so essentially the TLDR is that you should not really focus on stars that much. It's easy to make up and uh, you should check other, you know, other characteristics of the projects when you're choosing them, right? You should maybe yeah, yeah, check yeah. the sustainability, you know, the diversity of contributions of uh, organizations that owns it and so on. So many other things mm -hmm. like quality of the code, testing. Yeah, the, what's a really interesting yeah. read. Yeah, I, I think uh, on one side, as a consumer of open source uh, repositories, this is definitely a problem. Uh, I'm kind of happy that GitHub is taking a stance and, you know, it's, uh, well, it's at least uh, removing the obvious fake uh, stars. Uh, so that's good. But, but uh, yeah, uh, as you say, you need to be conscious as a consumer um, of, like, what stars actually mean and are there other measures, um, you know, of the reliability of this project. But there is another uh, interesting point here. Mm, there are a lot of um, companies that are building... Uh, let's say developer tools and they're either open core or fully open sourced. And uh, 
maybe they're even getting funding based on some metrics like what is the open source adoption? How do you measure open source adoption? Well, GitHub Stars is like a proxy measure for that. So it's very interesting. I, I'm very interested to learn if uh, VCs are actually uh, using GitHub Stars directly or they are using tools like uh, Astronomer that you uh, that you mentioned. Uh, <laughs> yeah, so anyway, by the way, if you want my star, uh, yeah, it's $100 if you want that. Or, <laughs> or you have to be a good open source project. That interests me. Either of those. Do you, <laughs> yeah. you are a premium, premium star. <laughs> cool. Um, yeah, and uh, maybe, you know, um, two last news. So, so one thing is that uh, I, I recently learned that apparently Stack Overflow traffic went down considerably. Mm -hmm. uh, it's 14% down traffic in March. Uh, and okay. uh, they claim it's due to ChatGPT. And I was just kind of curious... Is that really true? Like, I mean, it's true that the traffic is down, but uh, like I didn't look on Stack Overflow for so long time and I'm not using ChatGPT, for example, right? Are you bragging? Is this a humble brag? <laughs> yeah, okay, you got me there. <laughs> where, where do you look? O only in your book? <laughs> yeah, even for my book, I, I wasn't looking. No, no, no. honestly, uh, I'm looking maybe more on the blog post, maybe more on uh, actual mm -hmm. code, production code. Uh, on examples for libraries I use. I just, I was never very helpful, like in the sense I was not kind of authoring yeah. those Stack Overflow or like helping others. Um, mm -hmm. And uh, yeah, I w I'm curious if there are other reasons why Stack Overflow is not that used. I want to learn how, how this was measured. <laughs> was it official report from uh, Stack Overflow? No, 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 this is a, that is just a, just a blog post and um, essentially year over year, traffic is was down um in march and it's a uh, yeah has been down by an average of six percent every month since january last year and was down 14 hmm. percent almost in march and um yeah they try to correlate that to ChatGPT. it's not official stack overflow statement yeah it must be ChatGPT, or not even ChatGPT. there are a bunch of services around that like um find uh, that we mentioned in one of our previous episodes so i'm sure that there are a bunch of others you have copilot you have a lot of things that are uh, you know maybe reducing the need of going directly to stack overflow but th there is another um, interesting part here you know stack overflow is notorious for you know you post a question and somebody is just saying oh you're so stupid how how you don't know it uh, and it's maybe also, it takes time for somebody to answer your question. So I personally have never asked a question on Stack Overflow, right? You only use it for search. So if you're just naturally not uh, inclined to like ask on Stack Overflow, maybe it's easier to ask somewhere else. And what is the easiest place? Maybe ChatGPT or... Yeah, so apparently they compared with GitHub. Uh, mm -hmm. I mean, GitHub Copilot, but also just GitHub. And honestly... Uh, GitHub traffic, you know, increased a lot, um, and yeah. that, that's true. That's exactly like uh, I'm. I was not asking on Stack Overflow, but again, if I was asking, I was asking on GitHub, um, you know, mm, open source yeah, libraries yeah. or whatever code, and and check for usages there, right? Because that's kind of the source of the truth. And honestly, mm -hmm. maybe that's a out of fashion thing, right? Um, it was very popular back in the days where, you know, code was spreaded across so many different repositories that. 
uh, was, mm. was the only experts were on the Stack Overflow. But honestly, even when you think about Prometheus, um, so the project we maintain, we have some Stack Overflow tags, whatever, and yeah, we yeah. used to be kind of active there. But majority of people are getting um, learning how to interact with community directly. So they know the experts are there. Um, so somehow we are, yeah, I'm not sure. I just don't think it's chat GPT correlated, honestly. That much. Okay. Interesting. Um, definitely some part, but not not majority. But yeah, that's my guess. Yep, yep, makes sense. And um, what else increased uh, things of ChatGPT and AI? <laughs> uh, well, of course, it was uh, NVIDIA's valuation. Uh, it uh, now passes uh, 1 trillion, uh, which is crazy. Um, so actually, is it valuation or is it market cap? I'm not sure. But either way, we know that yeah, yeah, there is like one big winner uh, in uh, in all of the AI advancements that are happening right now, and uh, that's definitely Nvidia. Um, a lot of uh, a lot of the new things that are coming out, new like software products, they are literally GPU bound, right? Yeah, <laughs> they could probably deliver things faster if they have uh, more GPUs and you know N NVIDIA is like well, one of the biggest uh, players in the market so yeah it's interesting how this will develop. Yeah and I heard it on the Scott Galloway podcast as well like a really good statement that um, it's not really only AI but just kind of like coincidence of many uh, very lucky incidents for NVIDIA because yeah. first was blockchain that was also kind of boosting the sales of, uh, of yeah, GPUs yeah. and now the blockchain will went kind of like unpopular you know now we have another overhyped thing um, and yeah it's just so lucky and and they are definitely doing good work but the truth is you know that the, the market will um, yeah will pop up with new competitors uh, because it's a very lucrative um, thing nowadays so definitely we'll see more uh, companies building their own chips, yeah. right, on, on AI-dedicated, uh, yeah. Mm. Yeah, could be, but it's so difficult, <laughs> right? It's so difficult to get into this industry. Um, but yeah, it could be. Uh, by the way, if you're interested about learning uh, more about uh, NVIDIA, there is an amazing, like, three-hour episode of uh, Acquired, uh, a great podcast. So we're going to link all, all the things that we are mentioning uh, in the show notes. Um, today we have amazing guests, um, it's Bjorn Rabenstein and um, Bjorn, I really admire your work and I was always learning so much from you. You were, um, I kind of, I met you initially as a, in the Prometheus team, right? And you are Prometheus maintainers among other things and I mean, you're, yeah, you're so experienced in, in all the software engineering domains. So I'm super happy you are here with us to talk about some versioning Tell us a few sentences about yourself. Give you a quick intro. Um, yeah, what's your passion? What's your story? Um, yeah, I mean, my professional story, I try to keep it very short. And it's essentially, I've worked as a freelancer for all kinds of stuff. Then Google caught me in the early days of SRE. And I realized this is the thing I was made for. <laughs> and um, from there, I moved to SoundCloud. Um, 
May mostly because some ex-Googlers that I knew, they tried to lure me over because they wanted to create some kind of open source monitoring tool following the same spirit as what we do at Google, which I found a really weird idea, but it was fun. And I mean, you probably know now what I'm talking about. It's Prometheus, which changed the world in a way, which was very unexpected. And that also defined my recent most recent career step uh, which was uh, making Prometheus my day job and that happened by joining Grafana Labs which I did like three years ago four years actually it's four years like time is flying um, and that's like I did Google SoundCloud Grafana Labs uh, increasingly obscure companies like from a like normal people don't know what Grafana Labs is they know what Google is and if they are like millennials or Gen Z or whatever it's called these days then they know what SoundCloud is but yeah, Grafana, you, you know that, right? You too. Definitely. And we have already one guest from Grafana. Uh, we have Brian in the one of our first podcasts. So um, definitely. What's your passion, Bjorn? What, what do you love to do? Um, you mean if I'm not doing computing? Both. This and this. Work and life. I don't know. I try to, to get away from computers in my free time, which then I play cardboard games, right? like cardboard computers, if you want. Yeah. <laughs> I try to avoid video games. I, I did a bit during the pandemic, but I like mostly playing with physical beings sitting at a table. That's really fun. Um, I also like to play music if I find the time, um, which was SoundCloud was kind of a, a nice match with that, right? That um, I worked as a software engineer for a music streaming company yeah um, but when i was very young i had like some ambitions of doing something professionally in music what instrument uh, various instruments mostly the the flute like the mm -hmm. western concert flute or whatever the like globalized name for that is but i, I played a bunch of instruments did a bit of composing um but that is kind of previous life right and I'm very happy that I didn't make it um, my profession because <laughs> I think like computing is so easy to do for to earn your money and if you have to do it with art it's it could be so it could happen so easy that it spoils everything right um, so I'm very glad I can do all those things as my hobbies and make my money with boring computer stuff right <laughs> yeah yeah um, I mean, that's funny, right? Because I don't know even if you had the same, but I kind of joined Improbable, like the startup, gaming startup, because I like playing games. And I thought, oh, yes. And then I jumped into SRE and Onco and like, where are my games? <laughs> but like SoundCloud sounds like similar um, direction, right? You probably had a lot of employees that were into video games, right? Yeah. And then you had something to talk about. And similar at SoundCloud, like every SoundCloud party had like bunch of live bands made up of employees, right? That's that's quite <laughs> different. It's important. It, it's a vibe of the company and makes people uh, integrated well. I want to kind of go back a little bit to the board games because honestly, that's one thing is it's a good icebreaker. But second thing is that I want to know more because I heard somewhere that you are designing those board card cardboard games. Is it, is it right? I designed a single board game and that's not even, it's a pretty nerdy one. It's not, it's like totally, yeah. it's, it's a niche in a niche. <laughs> but that was really more like from an academic exercise. I like more to play games than designing them. But yeah, sure. I mean, it's, it's maybe it's kind of related to computing and 
it's somehow a match. I always, I, in every company I worked for, I started a board gaming group and there were mm -hmm. always a bunch of software people who also like to play those non-computerized games. So maybe there is some connection. And then did you design this game for to, to play it? Or actually you designed it for others or just to learn? It felt like this is some higher beings order me to design that game. Like it felt more like a study, but okay. then <laughs> very selected few people actually like it. And then was even a small American publisher who published it. And now even the Chinese discovered that game. And now a Chinese publisher is also publishing it in Chinese. So who knows? That probably means a million people will play it now, a tiny fraction of China. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, thanks. That's... that's um... That's amazing. Uh, but let's switch gears to the, our main topic, right? So um, I think that the real idea for this um, for this topic, um, so versioning your APIs, is came to me when I was kind of um, working on the version second version of kind of let's say medium popular um, open source project gRPC middlewares. Bjorn, are you aware of that project? I'm aware of gRPC, but gRPC middlewares. I mean, you're you're for you're for a bunch of projects, right? Yeah, but 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 especially middlewares where the well, and we kind of touched about talked about middlewares in our first uh, podcast episode. But generally, you know, they allow to instrument certain things in your kind of like gRPC server, right, and client, and um, and one of those are observability, of course, but there are also authorization purposes or any other. But the thing is, you know, it's written in Go. It's a library that everybody or like the people can consume, can import via Go modules, and. I was designing them to be, we had to change the, break the, the compatibility, right? So we created a second version. So I tried to build this, those, this, this library APIs and the code in a way that I don't need to do another major versions or like not a many of them. And I would not break users. And it was extremely painful work. And, and this is why I thought we should talk about that more, right? Is it an effective work? Do we um, should as a maintainers like care about those things? To what extent? Um, and um, what it means to create another version and so on, right? And I think it's super connected to your um, maybe state of mind, Bjorn, because you are just about to talk about similar topic on the GopherCon, right? In in few weeks. Yeah, exactly. I, um, I, this is all coming from long, fun and also painful experience maintaining a, a Go module, the uh, instrumentation library for Prometheus. Um, I luckily I, I found some um, some some guy who who would who would take that over. I don't know. Maybe you know that guy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, I maintain it now and, and Kemal. Yeah, so. yeah, yeah. So you and Kemal are maintaining it now. Um, uh, but I maintained it kind of almost from the beginning. Um, that was my first job in the Prometheus project to get this instrumentation library uh, brushed up. Let's say there was already something. And um, yeah, of course, that was when we were all young and Go was young. <laughs> it's, yeah. So there were many mistakes made and uh, you want to fix them. And then you realize that's kind of easy if nobody's using your, your open source project and then you can make it better and then maybe somebody will use it. But if you already have, I don't know how many users, you become very 
uh, yeah, it, it gets very costly to change something in a way where even a small fraction of your users will suffer from because then we are back at what's a small fraction of China, right? This might still be a lot of people if you if your library is really popular. And that happened, right? So suddenly, it I don't know, it's probably in the top 20 most popular Go modules. Um, I'm, I can't prove that, but it's something, right? Um, yeah. And, and honestly, you know, why I think you are the best to talk about those things is that, you know, I maintain now the client Golang code and I inherited a lot of decisions you made. And honestly, I have never seen so clean code, especially like on API side, like the, the commentary you have, they're like essays, right? And they are very accurate and very useful. They explain not only, you know, what the certain method does, but also what are the semantic uh, characteristic of that that you cannot really put in the signature of method, right? So when the error is happening or what kind of errors you might be expecting. And um, we can discuss if those things should be versioned and compatible, but like uh, the compatibility is so wide, it can really touch so many uh, layers of software, right? So maybe start with like simple question. Why we, why we, why we care about compatibility and what compatibility even means? That sounds like a very broad question, right? I mean, the one thing is we have, we were talking about libraries, right? Which is yeah. probably what we should do here mostly, but uh, there's not just libraries, right? The compatibility also means how, like other um, I mean, libraries, mostly you link it in, you have some API, uh, code API, right? You could, could call it, there's probably a better term for that that yeah, I'm that's not good. aware of. But then you have other, interactions right you could interact over the network you can interact via configuration files you uh, or, or just file formats in general and then you also interact with humans right and there we get to to uh, versioning for the human interface um, uh, if a software that humans use sun suddenly behaves very differently you might also call this a compatibility break right um, so it's it's everywhere, and then the question is, if we version those different interaction modes, uh, what are we actually versioning, right? Uh, we had a fun experience with Prometheus uh, because we were really keen in the wider Prometheus, like Prometheus, the server, uh, to keep like to not have any breaking changes in behavior in the UI in the APIs. Uh, so we versioned that, and there's only version two right now so it's pretty good right we, we've rarely broke users but um, the code changes all the time and people who see who look at this code it's open source and expect that nothing in the coding api changes if there is no major version bump they are yeah disappointed which is different from like prometheus client Golang, which is explicitly just a library and uh, it's now version one so we would no not break it uh, or otherwise we increment the version to number two, or you will do it, or you will not do it. I mean, we might discuss this here, right? So can, can we can we put things into perspective? Uh, can we say what is the cost of breaking compatibility? It's a very broad question, but like, let's say we tomorrow we break the compatibility in client Go for Prometheus. Like, what will happen? Like, what, what's the big deal? Why don't we break it every day? Um, so, I mean, for one, as long as nobody updates anything, nothing happens, right? But then people want new features and also the way Go dependencies are updated. And that's true for other languages, for sure. 
Um, if you don't mark a breaking change with a major version bump, a lot of the updating tools might just say it's safe, quote unquote, <laughs> to update, and they might just do it. And then ideally your code doesn't compile anymore. That's the best possible outcome because the worst possible outcome is your code suddenly behaves in an unexpected fashion you don't even notice. Um, so there is, um, it's more interesting in the old days of Go, <laughs> which is probably not a good role model for any other languages where it was essentially anything goes, you just um, uh, pull in what is in the, in, in, at the tip of the, the main branch in a GitHub repo or something. And then you would just pull in all the changes all the time and um, yeah, hope then everything still works. Uh, <laughs> but maybe that's also a good way to do, like we have some interesting ideas maybe here in this episode. Yeah, yeah, and I, I think, uh, yeah, basically every single project that uses this library will be affected, but there are also like transitive dependencies. Every project that is using the other project, if it's broke in, in a broken state, this, this can be problematic as well. But yeah. Uh, we know that, you know, breaking compatibility, ideally we avoid that because of those problems. And I really like that we kind of categorize to uh, like probably there are more um, ways you can break users and some ways like for example compilation error it, 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 can we call it like a low not risk but low uh, low effect and then there are like uh, more significant problems when you know have semantics probably there are different kind of categorization but there is. When we version our API, we don't categorize this way. Like we have breaking change is a breaking change. So so wonder if we could kind of like layer a different uh, versioning um, kind of like pieces. For example, like, yeah, we version code and for example, a method of, um, of the Golang code. And, you know, like what we assume it's a, it's a compatibility break. For example, if there is, um, for example, if the method expected, I don't know, like what can be a semantic change that is acceptable or like that, you know, obviously like if you break a signature of the method, you know, you, you have a compile error and we, especially in Golang, we assume this is like a breaking change. Um, what are the like gray areas here where some people might not agree that this is a breaking change, but we say it's breaking change. I mean, there is what I always quote is this XKCD, this one cartoon. I mean, I think there are a bunch about this topic uh -huh. by now, but there's the classical one where like somebody complains that if they hit the control key and then, I mean, this was all a bug fix, right? A bug fix where CPU cycles were burned unneededly while you hold down the control key and then somebody fixes it. And then another one, complaints that they use that to switch on the fan of their CPU. Some weird <laughs> story, right? I mean, of course, it's just hilarious, but uh, this is a cartoon, but it has the true kernel in reality where whatever you do, any change of behavior, if you really fix a legitimate bug, there might be somebody out there who depends on the buggy behavior. Yeah, yeah. Um, of course, right? And then even then you, you just make something faster and somebody had some bad timing and depended on this function to run for at least a second and now it runs in 500 milliseconds and breaks somebody. <laughs> and I mean, we had a lot of discussions in the Prometheus community because Prometheus is used so widely. Uh, we have this responsibility and we had a lot of discussions like, but this is now technically a break and change. And then we were saying, no, but it's just, 
everything is getting better and nobody has used this old behavior and that's why we're improving it but yeah this is scary Bjorn and then and I didn't realize it, but you're right like everything is a breaking compatibility any change can be in some sense if we take it very seriously and examples of that are very uh, interesting like I recently we were uh, playing with actually we are updating client go like whatever protobuf library and you know they have this text format which is they they make it on purpose they add a randomly randomly space like instead of one space they randomly add two spaces somewhere to have a random output so no one can um can kind of depend on that because it's always random so it's hard to even have tests or or um so so when you compare a proto buffs you have to pr compare the types and 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 uh and not marshaled uh, output especially in the text format and by the way like protobuf ideally they said i we wish we could do that with the protobuf so binary format as well to have random artifacts so no one compares them uh you know uh, byte by byte uh but rather we compare semantically because that it allow it allows maintainers to change things to add more stuff and 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 uh, have less uh you know breaking radius and damage the community uh, and fortunately or unfortunately they already made the decision and people already started to depend on this so binary format is strict but then text format is yolo they kind of print random bytes <laughs> but empty ones so semantically they don't make any difference right this is this is how crazy it can be if maintainers really care for this freedom of innovation, right? What do you think, Bjorn? Like, is it a good idea what they do with this protobuf or or we should like vote for, for, for actually changing this? I mean, you mean this randomly changing text Yeah, output. let's talk about specifically this. Like how are they either not maybe too detailed on this? I mean, what, what uh, drives us now a bit uh, mad uh, about them is that the old implementation didn't have that, right? So yeah. we, we, for years, we were working with that and now they said, oh, people depend on that. We should actually screw them over and make it now a random thing. I mean, uh, fundamentally they are right, right? But, and we can also, it's kind of easy to write, to, I mean, we are now adjusting our tests, right? That we're all comparing the text output uh, because it was just simple. So we can fix the test, but then we did which is again like a Go specific thing. Go has this nice example test case, right? Which is mm -hmm. at the same time, it's documentation because you just have a bit of example code and but you can run and the example code in the documentation tells you also the output. And then yeah. you could run the example as a test and the test will pass if the example output mm -hmm. in that document example is actually what the code outputs so we had a lot of this and since it's so easy to print out the uh, text rendering of the protobuf format to say to teach the users in the example this is what the protobuf looks like and now that doesn't work because you cannot hook into the code that is running the go examples to to have a different comparison so there's where we are really screwed now and we have to come up with something really different Maybe we have to write our own text display layer for Protobuf. We will, yeah, yeah. Or like that removes double spaces and replaces it with one. Yeah, which is so weird, right? I mean, then we are actively undoing, uh, yeah. But that's, I mean, it's a specific thing because Go examples want this, they want this text byte by byte comparison to, to verify the example as a test. Maybe that's a pretty niche thing, right? 
And another example is uh, Go Golang Maps, right? Uh, you know, many people were basing their um, assumptions that map when you iterate, they, they kind of like sorted in some way, or at least in the in the uh, order of how they were inserted, or they might expect certain behavior, right? But like, and the fact is, implementation was doing that. Like, it, we could have an ordering. Uh, like we iterate over elements and it will go in the same order as we appended them or like added to the map. Um, and, you know, but could go like, um, you know, authors, they said, okay, we, for optimization purposes, we don't know if you want to promise that for future. So we will introduce this random sorting whenever you, you know, iterate over, over, over things. And honestly, you know, it's super, people were kind of like sad and they have to add really additional code and sometimes inefficient code, but um, it's amazingly important uh, from, from the maintainers, right? Perspective. Yeah. And it's it's a very googly thing to use that word. <laughs> I mean, they this is how Google, um runs there i mean there's this famous thing i think it's in the sre book where they have this global log server cell which is was too reliable and people started yeah. to rely on this to have a better performance than its slo and then they consciously maxed out the error budget essentially to make people realize if this breaks what happens and they could always claim it we have only broken it on purpose for like not as much as we promised in our SLO, so you should be fine. And if your software can't cope, it's actually, it has the problems on your side. And it's a bit similar to this, like randomizing the maps so people don't rely on it. But it's also a good story, right? If you, if you yeah. have, I mean, if you have a behavior that is technically clearly marked as this is undefined and you shouldn't rely on that, but people still do it, then you could break them and you could say, I'm technically right. I have all the right to break you, but it's still bad, right? So in that way, it's better. And again, like the Prometheus thing is, is teaching us those lessons. We had so many features in Prometheus where we said, this is an experimental feature. Don't rely on it. Don't use it in production. And then like remote write is this thing where like a billion dollar industry was built on top of this remote write protocol, which is completely experimental. And when he said, okay, now let's redesign and do everything differently, then it was blatantly obvious that we can't do that, even if it's explicitly marked as zero dot something experimental bleeding edge code, which is the opposite of you have a feature that is officially versioned and it shouldn't break, but nobody's using it or nobody's using it exactly that way. So then maybe you could also, despite being technically wrong, changing it in a breaking fashion, uh, you could do it. And I think there was something in Go. Ah, I, I think it's somewhere in my talk, uh, but I forgot. Because Go is also a nice study about keeping it at Go1.x, right? So we are now yeah. at 1.whatever. Uh, and they initially assumed there will be a Go2 eventually, but it's not in sight, right? So they managed to introduce a lot of new features and, and invasive things like generics without breaking this compatibility. But there are a few tiny things where you could say, this is technically like I could write code that would work differently and it would break with Go one dot something and now the modern Go versions. But it's so obscure that they accepted that, right? So uh, when we're talking about compatibility, a lot of times we're talking about backwards compatibility, right? Making sure that whenever I push new code, it doesn't break uh, the users that are using the older versions they need to upgrade. 
But the examples that uh, we gave with the Go Maps, uh, with Google artificially adding latency, uh, they, they seem to me like examples for forward compatibility, making sure that uh, you prepare yourself so that in the future, if something changes, users are not uh, kind of affected or uh, they are kind of prepared for this break. Are there any other things that we should be doing as uh, maintainers of libraries or APIs or whatever to uh, make sure that we kind of uh, hit this forward compatibility? Maybe before, maybe let's define what's backward compatibility and forward compatibility for our listeners. Yeah, I'm always I'm always confused. I mean, the backward compatibility is probably what everybody understands, right? As compatibility, you have you you update your software and it can still process the input from the past. <laughs> from that perspective, forward compatibility is you you have input from the future and you process it with your old software and it still somehow works, right? I mean, protobuf is such a nice. Thing also how it is exactly. designed, yeah. how it how it has forward and backward compatibility in mind. Like you have the old proto, like you 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 can future versions of the software can ingest the old proto of messages, and even old version of the software can ingest the new proto of messages. They might just still behave weirdly, right? Because they mostly ignore the stuff that they don't understand. But it's never that like. Like what you have with the naive um, format, like we have, I mean, I'm coming back to Prometheus all the time. I have to apologize, but that's just my life. It's good, <laughs> good. Let's do uh, it. We have the, there's a protobuf exposition format in Prometheus and there is a very naive text-based exposition format. And the text-based exposition format is just like defined straightforward, which makes it very simple. But if you introduce any kind of weirdness, then you have no guarantee that any implementation of a parser or a generator would cope with it. If you suddenly decide I have introduced special characters that were not allowed before in the metric name, then maybe the um, parser will, will just pause it or maybe they will crash or do something completely weird. Well, Protoav, it's like all perfectly defined how this works and how it behaves. And then, of course, you could still break your application as in now it's missing that piece of data that it really needs, but it's all in a defined way. It's, it's a really... Yeah, yeah, I like it. And honestly, protobuf is what uh, taught me what backward and forward compatibility actually means in practice, right? Because, you know, it's essential when you introduce microservices, right? Because you roll out a new version of portion of your stack of your system, right? So you have to maintain backward compatibility, well, forward compatibility, but then you revert and then you kind of like introduce this back and forth things and uh, and it's super crucial to to have those compatibility bits. And especially to your point, Bjorn, like I remember we broke this compatibility guarantee even with Protobuf because um, there was like Enum, uh, which allows you to put multiple fields as a one, well, multiple types as a one field. And we, and Thanos, I remember in the in open source project, Thanos that scales from twos, um, we... What was that? We kind of put, um, well, we assume, is it this type or this type? And if it's anything else, we return an error. And, you know, the protopath itself is compatible, forward and backward, but the fact that we uh, ensure that this is either of those two types and nothing else means we are not forward compatible because a new version of protopath, a new kind of services required a new type in this enum, a third one, 
and we immediately crash all the microservices because we are ensuring on a double. So there are lots of best practices on using even protobufs uh, to not check, to ignore additional fields, uh, you know, explicitly, right? So there are lots of nuances. But to your point, Ivan, like what's the, yeah, what's, what are the other forward compatibility tricks um, you remember maybe Bjorn? And do we have any forward compatibility, like specifically something done in client Golang for forward compatibility? I mean, yeah, hmm. we can always add method. So that's always relief. I can give an example that may be relevant to client Go. I, I'm not uh, uh, super familiar with, uh, with, with the project, but uh, my basic example for forward compatibility in protobuf is uh, if you have a service or a function or whatever that you're defining that returns something, if you say that it returns, let's say, a string, and you just say it returns a string, then that's amazing. But tomorrow when you want to return a string and an integer, then you're basically breaking every single client if they have to use the, the new version, right? So in order to, to be like forward compatible, if you expect that at some point you might change the what exactly you're returning, you instead of returning a string, you return a struct, right? You return a message, right? And this message can contain arbitrary number of uh, things. Can, initially, it contains just a string, but then when you add the integer, that's fine because all the uh, old clients, they will just use the string that they know about. They won't even care about the integer. So that's kind of like one way to make sure that you APR or whatever is uh, forward compatible by kind of expecting the places where things can grow and leaving space for them kind of. I think that's exactly what we have in many places, in even in client Golang. Specifically in Golang, you can you have a method and that constructs something, like a new method, and then uh, you, you provide a list of arguments of how you want this Prometheus counter to, to, to look like. And if we just had arguments, like, you know, it has to have a name, description, and a list of labels we would be not forward compatible. But right now we have a struct with options, right? So we could add a new fields uh, in, a, in a forward compatible form, right? That's kind of like some, some, something like that. I mean, I think we are running into like everything is relative here uh, from the other direction. It forward compatibility becomes backwards compatibility. <laughs> I mean, I, I'm not even sure if with regard to libraries, you could talk about forward compatibility. That sounds like you should write code where you could link in an older version of the library and it would still work yeah. um, or something, right? I mean, it, it becomes kind of weird um, because libraries are mostly like we want even the old, no, we want to update the library and the old code still should still work. That was using the, li the old library before. It should now use the new version of the library and still work, right? That's the... Yeah, I think we are mixing definitions. I think we are a little bit conflating forward compatibility with flexibility for changes, right? I think that that's one, uh, I think that's one thing. And the other thing is like, if you have uh, uh, compatibility between client and a server, right? When you have two-way communication where both of them potentially need to sync, versions in order to work or not. And if you have just a, a library and a single product, then the compatibility is only within the single product, right? It's also like, do are different versions, like is there a natural order of them, right? We just call them version one, two, three, but they are just different, right? We could call them, I don't know, uh, 
foo and bar and there would not be a natural order <laughs> and then forward or backward becomes really arbitrary i don't know it's very philosophical but what like i think even you mentioned this uh, pretty much at the beginning what you could have of course is you have a piece of you you use two libraries and the libraries both depend on the same secondary level dependency but they both depend on different versions of it what happens then right then you get really into tricky situations if it's completely locked up you could have both of them in but if they use objects in a very general sense from both of that um like if objects from that library shine through through their api and then it they they come up in different versions then you have like a diamond shape dependency problem and go modules try to solve that but like every language in their dependence mentions they have this problem and then any incompatibility could become a problem no matter how hard you try to accommodate it yeah yeah totally okay so one big elephant in the room i found i find here is sounds like everything is at risk of being a breaking change uh, to some degree, imagine you have a code API, again, our client Golang or anything else, you have a method, and maybe we should be afraid of changing variable names in arguments because maybe somebody reflect, is reflecting the signature and checking that if variable is named and dynamically doing something, right? So we can get extremely crazy where every change is a breaking change. So how to not get mad and and as a maintainer deliver code that is reasonable reasonably versioned what is the that reasonable level how to not get insane and how to be pragmatic and not too much worried what's the balance here that's a good question and this is why this xkcd cartoon is so funny right because it's clearly beyond that limit right but where do you where you yeah, but where do you draw the line, right? And then, of course, if you say if somebody is using whatever reflection tooling their language has and finds out that there is some change, is that part of the document? I mean, I think you can try to draw this line by making very clear what is the the documented guaranteed API surface. And different languages or different UIs, different APIs, whatever we're talking about, make this harder or not so hard, right? I mean, if you talk, like if you interact with humans, it's probably always hard because they are so like inexact or something. But um, uh, yeah, it's it's cool if your language, your preferred tool, whatever, has a clear definition of that. And Protobuf is probably a pretty good example yeah. defining this. In, in Go, we have like internal packages, which I think are a bit underestimated or undervalued to make clear this part of my library is actually, it might have ex exported types, but it's not meant to be stable. Um, so you can, um, you can go at like, yeah, you can hide you can hide some some code from from usage and you only internally use it and honestly you you said underutilized but i hate this i recently was looking for a hacky way of of leaking that internal api because i really wanted this endpoint for like for example adding this uh random change in proto text to disable it because there is a way to disable it for tests they disable it authors disable it and, and users cannot so but like it's it's a shady line this kind of like balance of what's guaranteed or not i want to kind of clarify one thing like we were joking with this variable name and people reflecting the code you know 
that might be not a job. Like if you think about eBPF auto-instrumentation tools that kind of travels your code and check for execution stack traces and do specific thing based on your variable name uh, functionality and maybe track increment metric based on that or, or uh, do a trace span from it. Like they can, they might depend on it. So that might be not a job. That, that might, some people might be, you know, depending on those things. No, no, I'm, I didn't mean to be a joke. It's just like, you could make it very clear what you mean to be stable, right? And then you can have a documentation that says these parts of my API are actually the ones that are meant to be exported. And then you could, in cases where like you have a language where reflection is easy, you could say, and by the way, the variable names may change, right? But what uh, about what we said before? Like no one cares about documentation and what's Right, yeah, that's the thing where you where you could. This is why it's so tricky and in a way very benign uh, to to include randomization. And of course, I mean, if you want to go down that alley, you could uh, like obfuscate your variable names in every minor version you have. But yeah, I mean, of course, there has to be some some reason some reasonable limitations here. But it's definitely good if you at least write it down and I think Go, for example, is doing this quite nicely. We tried it for Prometheus to, to, to write down in a file what's actually the stability guarantees. So at least it's somewhere, right? That's even if it's then ignored and then you have to take this into account again, but at least it's, it's at least the intention is, has been clarified. Um, while in other cases, you don't even know if that's something the developer meant to be part of the API or not. Yeah, I think it, also helps to think about uh, the the problem you might kind of like add by breaking this compatibility, right? So um, you can imagine how much work is to yeah update some code, right? So for example, for compilation error, compiler already uh, I don't know you could somehow tell people what to use instead, or automatically use tools that upgrade you to the new method. There are ways to kind of like mitigate backward compatibility as well. Yeah, and uh, it's interesting. To, to me, it seems like, let's say docu documentation is the first level. We can say, okay, this will be what is stable, this is what's not stable. Then you get like the next level, maybe adding some obfuscations and stuff. And do you think the nuclear level, like the max level is just saying, I'm V0 forever? Nothing is stable. Like, <laughs> you can't depend on anything. And uh, there are so many projects that are V0 forever. Or like, they're not specifying You could be very pure in, in this way and say you need perfect test coverage. So even if a change doesn't uh, like break the compilation, it should break your tests. And if something makes it through your test, then your test coverage is leaky. <laughs> so you could, you could have this kind of very dogmatic view of the world and maybe it works. Um, I mean, it's also, we, we can talk about like monorepos where there is no versioning in like the pure idea of monorepos. You just check in a change and it must pass all the tests in your whole monorepo. It's just, this works in a like limited uh, universe where it could be pretty big, like Google is doing that, uh, but uh, it usually doesn't work with the real universe because you have too many moving parts there and different stakeholders and they don't all agree on one one monorepo that the world should rely on. <laughs> but this is, I think it's getting into this, we don't really want versions. And it, it was fun, like I had my Google time with the 
monorepo, radical monorepo approach. And then I would switch to SoundCloud, which at this time was in the radical microservice share nothing phase. I mean, they, they, they went like they deviated a bit from the pure idea, similar to Google who deviated a bit from the pure monorepo, no versioning at all idea. Uh, so often the most pragmatic solution is somewhere in the middle. But in that moment, it was really like everything had to be versioned and uh, you had like really, really high version numbers because so much was considered a breaking change. And then you had whatever version 52 of something. And um, yeah, I, I could like see one and then the other approach um, just after another. It was quite exciting. And of course, there's no clear one is the winner and one is the losers. Everything has their pros and cons. I have the same experience. Like I was like shifting from different sides. Like, you know, when I was maintaining and creating, developing libraries, I was like, why I'd have to care to, to, I want to rename something to be more readable. Like, and I want to, okay, I will mention in changelog that I meant I changed this method name. What was the problem? Just change, change. It will put you on compiler error and it's so easy to change it. Just change it, right? Um, and and then I started to work at Google and with monorepos and I tried to update Prometheus dependency and it took me like, I don't know, hundreds, uh, those kind of pull requests which are, you know, like internally to monorepo. It's impossible, and especially with Prometheus because it's uh, we, we don't have compatibility on coding APIs. So we do compile errors, semantic errors and so on. But the fact everything is connected and every like so many people use it and one change updates all of them it's just impossible to work with if you don't have a really good semantic versioning of your APIs, right? So then I moved in the side of like, oh no, everything is super strict. Don't ideally don't change anything, right? Uh, but the problem with the semantic conversion, like like this versioning and uh, semantic versioning generally, uh, because the semantic versioning is a very important thing you have to learn as a software engineer. There is major version, minor version, patch version. They have their own kind of behaviors, right? But it's actually, you know, a good question. What's better? Uh, is it better to keep V1 or keep one version and uh, maybe do some breaking changes, but like soft ones? Like, for example, I changed the method name because it's easy to spot in or it's better to be very strict and, and, and really follow some semantic conversion, which is, by the way, another documentation. What's the, the, the balance line of, of, of compatibility? Um, but maybe you should be strict and always have another version, which means my client Golang, we would, we would see in one year client Golang V100. And at this point, like, what's, what's the benefit if users instead of have to still update client Golang, but instead of maybe having those soft changes and keeping V1, they have to change to version 100 and still have breaking changes, probably even bigger ones. So it's, it, what's the benefit of semantic versioning? It's so in some way broken, right? Or like, what's the, what's the same level of, of doing this? Yeah. I mean, the, the client Golang user, they didn't see breaking changes, right? They, uh, I mean, Prometheus client Golang. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, but then we have duplicate code. Uh, we have a lot of duplicate APIs, right? We have a lot. I mean, there are so many issues marked V2 because this is like, this change can only be implemented via a breaking change, right? So we will uh, pilot up for the legendary mythical V2 that will happen one day <laughs> and it has, hasn't happened yet. But the, the thing is, Bjorn, is that I started V2 in V1 
Did you know that? Yeah, like yeah, we have yeah. V2 struct in V1 code. So we break out of the server, um, hack it. And I, I really asked this in a Golang uh, forum. And so many people already do that, right? Um, so you have a normal method, like as a new counter. And then you add a struct V2 or, or method or function V2, V2 dot new counter, which is a different signature, right? And within one Git version. So there are so many different ways of... of um, doing this and there is little kind of guidance for maintainers what to do honestly yeah i mean the the most tragic thing is if breakages just happen by accident essentially or what we did in prometheus client golang where we just didn't follow certain design uh, principles that if we had followed them would have made it much easier for us to not break users when we introduce an, a certain feature right so ideally those avoidable breakages we could all learn and teach each other to and this is why there's this talk at, at GopherCon Europe <laughs> um, so we um, so we learn to avoid breakages but then if there is a breakage that is clearly required I mean we should not be afraid completely right otherwise we we have this a bit like this inertia with client Golang where it's hard to to implement new features and we kind of shy away um, or we find like interesting ways of implementing them anyway but it's it's still more work right so you you might still shy away from them and you need to find that balance but then again client calling is an extreme example because it's so widely used which it, for a package that is like 100 times less used i would be way less concerned about those little breaking changes yeah and there is this meta question i always had what's the if it, is it a breaking change if I change, if I do breaking change in the current world, like for example, I rename a method in Golang, but then I have tool that automatically updates your code to use a new method, right? And by the way, there are precedents, like there are, there was Golang tooling, CLI that does that. And there are even proposals or like at least ideas to, to include this in Go module. So whenever you go get something and there is a the script that dynamically tries to, and maybe in future AI, that dynamically updates things, is it a breaking change? Probably not, right? No, it's just, that's very advanced tooling that is not like generally available, right? <laughs> but yeah, I mean, this this helps. And then again, this is, it, it feels a bit like this monorepo idea where, um, you try, you can change whatever you want, but you have to fix everyone whom you break, right? That's that's a bit similar. Yeah, and of yeah. course, there also Google has tooling for that for their internal development to make this even manageable, have a gigantic code base in a monorepo. And it's still, I mean, of course, you are in this this like tragic situation where you have to get an outside software product Yep. back yep. into it like and this this is where, where the monorepo model i think hurts most if you have to interface with something that is not part of your monorepo universe and then yeah. again it might like just nudge people towards writing everything on their own and not using some open source third-party software so it might also be still have a bad effect yeah do you agree that monorepos kill open source I don't know. <laughs> I mean, in a way, I think it, you all have to um, uh, use it with with um, some best judgment, right? You could argue that like the Prometheus Prometheus repository in itself is a monorepo, right? Because it has so many different parts already. And we try to 
uh, one like years ago, we tried to factor out TSDB as its independent library, and we noticed it's just too painful to have an independent TSDB library that is version on its own and could be used by third parties, of course. Essentially, we, we pulled it back into our Prometheus Prometheus monorepo because it is in such a dynamic environment, it's better to do it that way. Uh, but yeah, that depends where you draw the boundaries and yeah. uh, what in some situations it makes sense, in some other situations it's not helpful. What's the difference between a code API, what we call like, yeah, there's a method, you import some code, and maybe network APIs. Uh, what's the difference between compatibility of those? Is there any different or we should treat them in similar strictness? Let's say you have remote write or we have Prometheus exposition format, which is, you know, like negotiated over network between different languages, different, you know, projects versus like Golang application importing library and, and our API in the library. Is there a difference or we can treat them and say the same? I mean, fundamentally, you could say it's the same, but it's, uh, it's like different layers in the stack, right? And that's the problem that I mentioned in the beginning that uh, if you version the one, for example, the Prometheus version two dot something, what we have right now is is a version from the outside, right? It it versions the behavior of Prometheus, including all the network APIs, disk format, whatever, uh, but it doesn't version the code. And then on the code level, it's very different, and it's same principles, but it's it's just at a very different level in in the stack and um it it would be a different versioning schema right? that's also what i suggested we should just version prometheus on the code level as well and we would be at version 112 already or something but it would be a different dimension along your version than than the the network ipis and they're kind of independent almost right yeah and i think it follows our suggestion to really um treat think about the problem you cause. And when you kind of like break code API, the problem might be smaller than if you break network API and huge projects have to adapt and huge code bases that, you know, are harder to change. So I think network APIs definitely have to have a more strict approach, but, you know, there are protocols that helps with that. Okay, one thing um, I'm super curious about, Bjorn. Is, do you, can you recall any surprising, but, you know, compatibility breaks breakages that you or your colleagues post in any of the software. What surprised you? That you thought this will never break compatibility, but then, but then suddenly it breaks. Um, like like in the XKCD cartoon, right? <laughs> exactly. Yeah, but like on, in a reasonable way, right? Because this is this is this is like extreme. But there are you mentioned something about interfaces and structs in Golang, I think. Yeah, I mean that was just our that's will be discussed in detail in the talk. That was uh, just a an, an bad idea because we didn't understand Go interfaces when we were all young and it was our first first Go code in a way. Go itself was young, right? I mean, it wasn't even collectively well understood. I mean, a few probably understood it probably, but um, if you initially everybody hears interface and thinks about Go interfaces like Java interfaces, right? Like like an abstract class in a way, but that's not how Go interfaces are supposed to work. And we, um, uh, like we had this, if you, if you add a method to an interface, it's a breaking change, right? Because now your interface is very different, but if you add a new method to a struct, it's 
which direction is now? It's now forward or backward compatible? <laughs> Whatever. It's compatible. Like <laughs> some compatible. People yeah. who previously used your struct and all the old method, they can still use your struct yes. in exactly the same way. But if yes. you add a method to an interface in Go, then people who use the old interface cannot use the new one because it's now a different interface. Right. And and from that way, if you follow that interesting design principle that you should always accept interfaces but return concrete types in your functions and methods then uh, you avoid that problem and we didn't follow that in client Golang. so we had a lot of where we just returned interfaces because we thought oh that's cool it's like an abstract class which you can implement in different ways and now whenever we add a method to that interface where you return then we need interface upgrades and all that jazz. I mean, the Go standard library has similar problems with the whole, like yeah. let's say the interfaces for HTTP uh, in the HTTP package. Uh, they added more and more features and they also needed this trick of interface upgrades, which is like hard to explain in a podcast, but it will be explained in the talk, right? <laughs> yes. Goat for, or like, yeah, you can still buy tickets, I guess, for Europe CoferCon and and check how to avoid breaking changes in your Go module stock of Bjorns. And I'm sure it will be on YouTube at some point as well. Yeah, exactly. I think it's even streaming, right? You can participate online. I'm not sure. I have to check it out. Um, yeah, but it's like, again, it's like a best practice you could uh, learn um, when you learn the language and then it will avoid all this trouble. But like surprising things was, uh, I mean, what I really like, sometimes you think this is completely compatible if you um, um, like we had this discussion should we expand environment variables in configs and, oh yeah and then yeah. Uh, you think we can just add this it's not breaking uh, but then of course somebody could have normal a string that looks like a string that right? now looks like an environment variable reference right and how do you include this reference and then, then you realize it's just not possible because of the way you 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 yeah. defined it before, because you no know, nothing keeps you from writing dollar something in the old way, and it is meant as a literal, and now it's meant to be a variable, unless you had some smart escaping schema already in place, right? But then you had to predict the future. But that's something that like usually like where you were where something like Protobuf is so well designed to exactly. So okay, so. We are coming kind of to the end of this episode and I would love to summarize uh, suggestions and, and kind of like things that can help maintainers to to write effectively code and, and help with breaking changes for, for the users, but not get too scared of it, right? I definitely have one in my mind, which is like use protocol buffers or some protocols that helps and have very well-defined breaking compatibility and ideally forward and backward compatibility. What other suggestions we could we could outline i mean the go for con talk will go into go specifics which um yeah maybe it's not the right but let's place summarize here. let's summarize something yeah yeah i mean this what i said right this this it's a good design principle anyway to to return concrete types and accept interfaces that helps in go it's very specific um uh interface upgrades if if you didn't follow that or for some other reasons, it's a good trick, right? To avoid the breaking change, but that's really arcane ghost of. But yeah. what I think a good general uh, idea is, if, you, if you're not in a V0 anything goes world or in a monorepo world, but you are in a world where you version things and you actually want to convey a meaningful message with your versions, 
you um, you should make sure that you version the right surface, right? If you if you have a gigantic library with a lot of features and you give it a version 1.0, right? And then any one of those almost independent features gets a breaking change, then you have to go to version two. 90% of your users are not using that specific yeah. features, but they all get panicked because now they have a seemingly breaking change, have to make sure that everything still works. If you, um, packaged every single of these features into its own library which with it with its own version, then you have way fewer breaking changes visible. But now you have a lot of different libraries. And it's an interesting uh, balance. And I think this is something, I mean, you cannot just give a rule of thumb, but you could encourage people to think about that, right? What What's a good domain? Like what's the scope of your versioning? And um, um, that's, yeah, and also just, just be aware that this is a thing and, and that you should think about it. How much do you package into a version entity? It should not be too much and not be too little, which sounds easy, but yeah. Yeah, would you agree also that to, to, to be reasonable, to try to think, you know, accept some breaking changes because sometimes they are easy to fix. And, and if you are very open about that and you gather the feedback that this will be not super painful, I mean, it's better than waiting for version two that will happen in t 10 years and block an important feature, right? So my suggestion would be to like really <clears throat> be mindful about those things, but not too scared. Otherwise, one break broken user might be a worth doing than blocking thousands of people on important feature, right? And you should probably calculate that risk. I mean, I'm personally, I would be very much on the conservative side. Like, I mean, there is super weird edge cases where somebody could prove this is, again, XKZD cartoon. This is technically... Okay, so what about environment variables? Like, do, do, do you think that's extreme use case or that's kind of worth it still to change? I first thought this will never happen, but then I realized this will actually happen like enough. I mean, again, if Prometheus had 10 users, I would be pretty sure it didn't happen. But Prometheus has a million users, right? So we we were pretty sure this will happen enough in the universe that it will might cause an outage, right? <laughs> and also there are ways to mitigate. That you, you can be smart about that. Like you enable this special feature, which is environment variables, and then you opt in users. So maybe that's not breaking existing users. So, so there, are, and then you have feature flag and then you have experimentation uh, phases in documentation and so on. So there are lots of things you can do to not get crazy. Yeah, that's that's what, what we did, right? We, in, in, we had a feature flag for that. And then you could either be still strict and say, this feature flag will just stay there forever. Everyone will use it, but we don't make it default. But you could, this is like, I like it as a nice, like soft yeah. failover essentially or transition where you say the feature flag in this version, you have to add the feature flag in the next version. The feature flag is still there, but it's by default set, but you could unset it if it breaks anything. And in the, in the next version, we will just completely remove the feature flag and yeah. you cannot switch it off again, which is, I think Go did a few of those little dances. Uh, and then avoided to call it go to, right? Although it was technically a breaking change. Uh, so yeah. yeah, I mean, I would be pragmatic there, but but I would not generally, if I if I have bought into semantic versioning, I would not like say this is it just breaks your compilation. It's obvious, so I will not increment my major version number here. I I wouldn't do that. I would like try some other mitigation. What we described, right? 
Um, Or if I want to have this pragmatism, I would just do this stay at version 0.x forever. Why not, right? Especially if it's a library that is like special purpose and has a very specific user base and it's not like used by everyone. I think that's fine. And you can see this in the Go universe where uh, if you just look at the .mod files, go.mod files, what versions are you using? In your dependencies, so many are version 0.x and they are totally production ready, right? It's not that they're experimental software that you shouldn't use. Yeah, so people are actively refusing to, 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 to you know, to have strict compatibility for their own sanity. <laughs> yeah, but like, I think it's fair game, right? I th- but I think if you are like, if you if you want this pragmatic breaking, then you should signal it by staying at version 0.x. Okay, okay. I think that's that's amazing, uh, you know, like list of suggestions, and hopefully you will be an effective maintainer. Um, but for, but before we finish, I really wanted to ask like one interesting question that we typically ask all the all the guests. Um, Bjorn, are you using AI tools, generative AI tools like ChatGPT or or any of those? Do you find them useful? What, what's your thoughts? Um, so much, I'm just using them for fun. <laughs> I mean, I, I really haven't used them productively yet, but I'm also in this very privileged position at the moment that I'm working on a well-defined problem that is that I know very well, like the whole like Prometheus ecosystem. Yeah, so you're an expert. Yeah. And it's like, I, I totally see how uh, essentially boilerplate work. Um, that, I mean, that is boilerplate, but it's hard for human if that human isn't used to it, right? That's just so nice with Copilot or something. But uh, I like for the real hard problems, it's not solving the actual hard problems, right? It's 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 taking the the boring work away from you, and that's in a long tradition of what machines are doing. So I, mean, I, I like usually to say AI is neither artificial nor intelligent. Uh, <laughs> I, I like. <laughs> Um, I like to call it machine learning. I don't know why this switch. Like in the old days, we yeah, called it machine learning. It's exactly the same. Yeah. It, but it's not not catchy. I found enough, really but... cool. I found really cool. Like quote um, this week that that those ChatGPT tools, generative AI, is really good library for common knowledge. For example, to check what what commonly question common questions somebody would ask about something. So so common com, you know and 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 you if you are solving a new problem, then there is no common knowledge about that, right? So yeah. Okay, thank you very much, um, everybody, and uh, yeah, I mean it was super amazing to to have you, Bjorn. Thank you for accepting the invitation. And um, yeah, I'm looking forward to your talk on GopherCon and looking forward to meeting you next time. Thank you very much. Thank you too. Thanks everybody for listening. We really appreciate the feedback you give us. If you like this episode or you have improvement suggestions to our podcast, or maybe you want to hear us talking about a specific topic you'd be interested in, let us know. Feel free to use Google Form on this podcast description or reach us directly through social media. Have a safe and amazing week. Cheers.